So hey, good morning, man. Worship was good today, wasn't it? Wasn't it good? Yeah. And all this talk about heaven got me thinking uh, about heaven a little more while I was back there. And I, you know, I, it's it's dawned on me that you know I don't think we fully understand what's happening on a Sunday morning. We don't fully understand the dynamics maybe of heaven of the spiritual realm we yeah we've talked about it but i just don't think we we get it i think we live in a time where we're you know we want to be so rational we don't want to be you know caught off guard you know thinking that we believe in things like you know ghosts or spirits or any of these other things that you know the discovery channel likes to put on after about 10 o'clock at night um and you know, we, we wrestle with what do we do with heaven, what happens, and what about all the people that have gone there? And, and I had this passage that just stands out to me as something that I, I think we've, we've missed. It, it's, it, we start with Hebrews 11. If you've, read, if you've read the Bible, you've read any bit of Hebrews, you know Hebrews 11 is kind of a, a big famous passage because it highlights all of these really spectacular people of faith, people whose names you know. You know, Moses and Noah and Abraham and, and Isaiah and all these other folks are alluded to in other places in the passage. And, and it's pretty spectacular to see that happen. And then towards the end, it says, All these were approved, this is verse 39, through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So what the author of Hebrews, whoever it, it is, uh, they're writing that these people who were faithful people, they were approved in their faith. They didn't receive what was promised. What's that? That's, well, that's this promised land. We call it heaven. What does it then say? It says, verse 40, since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. So hold on for just one second. What this means is that this promise of heaven is waiting for everybody. Everybody that's gone before us, you know, the apostles, the saints, the people who we look at their life and we go, man, they have lived a life well and they deserve a reward. They are waiting in some beautiful place with the Lord. We kind of get this illusion in the Gospels. They are waiting for heaven just like me and you. So... It seems that, you know, there's this, this climax, this building, this anticipation where they're going, man, soon we're going to get to enter into this place that we've been waiting for. You, you come into Hebrews 12, and things get kind of interesting. This word shows up here at the beginning. It says, therefore. Now, we use that word as a throwaway word, sort of this like, you know, and then, next, you know, all of the kind of boring words that nobody wants to, to do much with. But the word therefore is a little more um, profound. It, it really, it could be translated also, right, consequently. Um, I want to I just do a little something different with it. I want to say uh, things are now different. Uh, as a result, things are now different. Or, or you could say just as a result. Uh, but, but regardless, it says therefore, as a result, things are now different since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. 
So here's the author of Hebrews is saying this is listen, all of these faithful people of the past, you know, the Abrahams and the Daniels and, and all the folks whose faith we celebrate, they are surrounding us as a cloud of witnesses. And you get this sense that they're cheering us on. Now, now here's the thing I think that we've missed maybe in the Protestant church is the veil between this life and the next is, is awfully thin. Yeah, if you look through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus tells this parable, or maybe it's a real account of this rich man and Lazarus. And you see that they are able to see what's happening on earth, and they're able to have some dialogue, things happening. Uh, the world, that's us, we're unaware of it, but it's, it's surrounding us. There's some intervention that seems to be happening in that moment where, where the rich man is saying, hey, listen, Abraham, could you help us out? Could, could things be a little bit different? Would you be willing to, to send him back to, to change the course of events? And Abraham says to this rich man who's rejected God and has perpetually rejected God, he says, listen, I'm sorry, there's, there's nothing I can do for you. But here's Lazarus in this place of comfort, again, watching what's happening, sitting there in the presence of God. You know, this tradition of praying to the saints is something that in the Protestant church, I think we've largely rejected. And the reason for that is because we have the great intercessor, Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is the one who intercedes for us. The scripture tells us that God's own son, God himself, is on our side. But Hebrews is sort of making it sound that we have a cheering section in heaven. You know, the story is told that the, the evolution of praying to saints began something like this, that in ancient Rome as the church, as these faithful people were about to be, uh, you know, martyred, they would have visitors from the church who would come to them and say, hey, listen, I've been praying for this for a long time. Tomorrow when you see God face to face, would you mention it for me? And these things sort of transitioned to where somebody who just passed would might then be, you know, they might say, hey, you know, sister so-and-so, if you can hear me, would you mention this to God? And that's sort of how this began. And I'll tell you, this, this passage here in Hebrews 12, I, I, think, I think there's good reason for that. that. That all of the faithful people who have known you and loved you, they are cheering you on. They are on your side. They are interceding for you. You go to the book of Revelation, and you start to see that there's this throne room, and there's these saints, and they're there, and they're surrounded, and they're in the presence of God, and they are cheering people on. Friends, that's us. They're cheering for us. They're cheering for me and for you. That's good news. Why are they cheering for us? Because they are excited to enter into that promised land, that ultimate reward that God has for us. And so I guess the word is this. It's be encouraged. Stay encouraged. You're not alone. Even if you feel like you're alone, even if you feel like you've got nobody on your side, you have a great cloud of witnesses on your side. So Hebrews 12, we'll finish that out saying, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what, what do we do with this information? Well, we just keep following Jesus. It says we keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Keeping our eyes on Jesus just seems sort of like just keeping focused on him, uh, doing what we can to just keep following after him in the different places. We've been talking through this series about uh, 
building a masterpiece with our lives. If anybody was a masterpiece, it's Jesus. We're still talking about his life 2,000 years later. It's changed the course of history, friends. And, and I want to say this, too, if, if we're in the midst of encouragement. I don't know. I feel like today we need some encouragement. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's the overcast uh, sky outside. Anybody uh, tempted to, to stay at home and watch uh, church today online? I, I was, and then I realized I had to preach. <laughs> I'm serious. Um, you know, I mean, we're, we've all been there. You know, but the encouragement. So, so what's the encouragement? I, I don't. Here's the encouragement: is this? If you get tired of trying to be like Jesus, because I think that's what we often tell people in the church: is just be like Jesus. You know, just go. You know, be better. You know, be good. Be be excellent. Be perfect. Go be like Jesus. Scripture, I think, is increasingly saying, yes. Why don't you just be with Jesus? If you spend some time with Jesus, guess what happens? You become like Jesus. We work so hard to, to make ourselves into something we're not yet. And in reality, if we just spend more time with Jesus through prayer, if we show up the places he shows up, which is places where he's serving and caring for the least and the lost, when we just show up in, in places where, where he is needed and we find he's already there, when we just spend time with Jesus, guess what? We find that we are changed into his likeness. It's what happens, right? You spend time with anybody, you start to become more and more like them. So you're not alone. Spend some time with Jesus and you'll find that you're transitioned more and more into his likeness. Uh, none of that was the sermon. I don't know. We're going to hit the highlights at this point, and we're just going to move on. Um, we've already touched a little bit on this here, but Jesus is that great masterpiece in life. I, there's something about Jesus that's just timeless. Um, I don't know what it is. It, it's, it's the difference between that art you see hanging up in the hotel room and the art you see hanging up in the museum. You know, it's that art that they've got for sale, you know, uh, mass-produced, you know, fine works of art here, you know, uh, you can buy them by the gross, and that one masterpiece that people flock to see. What is it that makes one a time display in rotation in a corporate office and another one that's going to be a timeless, treasured keepsake inside of a museum? One, it seems, comes from this authentic place of, of an artist trying to express themselves in the human condition. And the other one, it feels like it was manufactured. It was made for somebody else. You know, I think, you know, in music, I know a lot of people have given up on things like pop music and, and there's a big rise in indie music. Why is that? Because it seems like everything is sort of auto-tuned, follows the same format. You know, you do three, you know, three verses, a bridge, a song. You know, if the dog comes home or somebody leaves, you know, you got it and it's good and it's going to sell a bazillion records. But there's something that when you actually hear an artist communicate something and you feel that connection, you go, man, there's something real about this. That's what it is with Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes as the real expression of our humanity. But not just what it means to be human, what it could mean to be human. You know, that's one of the things that's inspiring about art is it doesn't just leave us with the state of, 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 you know, who we are and what we've been, but it lets us know who we could become. The masterpiece both exposes us and inspires us. It is both authentic and idealistic. This is what Jesus did. He came to live a real life, to be 
tempted in the same way that you are tempted, in the same way that I am tempted to suffer, to experience loss, to experience pain. And yet he said, you know what? There's more to life than just this. This is why the Apostle Paul says that if our hope in Jesus is just for this life, he says, you ought to feel sorry for us. He says, but guess what? We have a hope that goes beyond it. Jesus reminds us of that hope. We see that hope in his life, in his crucifixion. When we were at our worst as humans, what does Jesus say in that moment? He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You know, I don't know if I would have the type of power or grace to forgive people who had done such an atrocity to me. But looking at the cross gives me hope. It inspires me. It reminds me that there is something greater inside of our humanity, for we were created in the image of God, and we can become like Jesus as we spend time with Jesus. You know, next here, we've got this piece, and this is key. Jesus is our master craftsman. As we think about this hope we have in heaven and the encouragement that that gives us to keep going on this road of life, as we think about being with Jesus, we realize that this transforming power inside of us comes as we allow Jesus to do his work in us. You know, if you look through the scripture, you're going to notice that there's this, this phrase that says, you know, we are saved. Jesus, you know, he's provided for our salvation. That's a passive word. And there's another word. It's that we are being sanctified. God is doing that to us. What does sanctified mean? We're going to talk a lot about that in our next series. But simply what it means is that we're being made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm excited about our next series. We're going through the book of Daniel. Um, just real quick, how many of you do not work for a faith-based organization? How many of you work like for a secular group of people? All right, see, this is perfect. This is Daniel and his friends. They all work for the secular government, and not only are they just secular, but like, I don't know about you, but most of your bosses probably haven't said, hey, listen, we're going to go engage in idolatry later. We're going to go like go worship an idol. Um, it's really important that you show up for uh, idol worship at noon. Um, that was their life, and yet they navigated somehow being faithful, living in a very secular workplace. Uh, how did they do that? Uh, a lot of it comes, we'll see, through surrender. A lot of that comes to them having an attitude saying, you know, God is going to do what he wants to do with us. We need to be surrendered to him and allow him to do his work in us. What kind of work is that? I, I want to close with this uh, excerpt from, from John uh, chapter 2. I want to look at the last miracle or the very first miracle Jesus performs. Um, but real quick, show of hands, um, let's just take a poll. If you were the PR person for Jesus and like you were going to have like inaugural miracle day, what miracle would you pick? I'll give you a few choices. Uh, you can have somebody raised from the dead. You can give sight to the blind. Uh, you can um, make water into wine. Okay, those are your choices. How many of you go for raise somebody from the dead? Okay, how many of you go for sight to the blind? Yeah, right, that's kind of a like soft thing. You want to have some room for improvement. I like that one. That'd probably be where I'd go. Uh, how many of you pick water to wine? All right, I see that hand over there. Good job. All right, I appreciate that. 
Like, why? Like, what's the message? Like, the sight to the blind, we sort of see it, and we're like, oh, that's right, Jesus came so we could see what's really happening. Or, or when the people that can't walk and, and they can now walk, we're like, that's right, God gives them the power to go do something. Or, like, you know, you raise somebody from the dead. Like, the message on that's clear. Nobody's going, well, what does this mean? It means that he has power over death. But when Jesus, like, tends bar at the wedding, we're all kind of like, what do we do with this? Bearing that in mind, let's look at the text. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus replies, woman, that's not quite as rough as it sounds in the Greek, but it's direct. Woman, why do you involve me? Uh, my hour has not yet come. So you would think Jesus has now sort of said, listen, it's not my business. It's not my time. His mother, what does she say? She says, do whatever he tells you. Why? Because she knows that Jesus knows if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And so now we've got this happening. It says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. I don't do math, but I can do six times 20. That's 120 gallons. Or six times 30, that's 180 gallons of wine. This is a party, okay? That's what's happening. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. So we're, we're in the 120 to 180 zone. It's like when you fill up that gas can for your mower. It says it holds a gallon, but don't we all try to get like a gallon and a quarter in there? Don't we? Because we don't want to come back anymore. All right, sorry, here we go. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. What's the point? McManus has got an idea here. He says it's not outside God's intentions or his desire to meet us in the common places of everyday life, like a wedding. And it's possible that the same God who makes the blind see finds equal pleasure in increasing our happiness. So it could be that God wants to meet people right where they are. It could be that God wants to celebrate this marriage. It could be that God wants to celebrate the ordinary places and people in our lives. Uh, let's finish the story. It said he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And when he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Let's pause for a moment and ask this question. What kind of wine did Jesus make? I know some of you are like, you're horrified about this wine thing. It, it was much more diluted than the kind we have today. So I, I, I want to help you out there, but that's not the point. I, I'm not looking for alcohol content. I'm looking for quality. What kind of wine did Jesus make? It says that, that you normally bring the better wine out first, so they've already had the best wine that they had to offer. And now Jesus has made something even better. The master of the banquet says, listen, 
you know, normally people bring out the two-buck chuck, the stuff they got, you know, from the discount section, the kind that comes in the five-gallon bucket. That's what they bring out at this point. But you've brought out something special. But what kind of wine did you expect Jesus was going to make? The creator of the sun, of the soil, of the grape? Would he make anything less than the best? Nicodemus, you do not speak light into existence and then create a $3 bottle of sangria. He's right. You don't. That's not who Jesus is. That's not what he makes. He doesn't make something cheap. He doesn't make something ordinary. The point is this. Jesus doesn't have to tell anybody a miracle has happened. Jesus doesn't have to go around and say, you know what, I did that. It wasn't the spectacular nature of the transaction that indicated the divine intervention. It was the quality of the product. People looked and said, oh my goodness, he has made the best. It wasn't simply that Jesus turned water into wine that revealed his glory. It was that Jesus took ordinary water and turned it into exquisite wine that revealed who he really was. Church, that's what Jesus does. He takes the normal, he takes the ordinary, and he turns it into a masterpiece into something extraordinary. You know, we've dedicated a lot of babies here today. We dedicated a lot a few months ago. Um, be careful with drinking the water around here. I don't know what's going on. But it's awesome. But here's the thing I've noticed about babies and, and families. is like everybody has a pretty ordinary birth. Everybody has pretty ordinary parents. Most people grow up in a pretty ordinary town. The stories are different. The family structure changes from time to time. Some people have a more difficult road to hoe. Some people seem to have things come together a little bit easier for them. But by and large, most of the stories in this room, we would all go, yeah, that's kind of a garden variety American story. But we don't control that. We don't control who our parents were or where we were born. We don't control, you know, the socioeconomic status into which we were born. We don't... You know, we don't have control over a lot of that. But that's good because God takes the ordinary and turns it into extraordinary. If you spend enough time with Jesus, pursuing Jesus, looking after Jesus, and if you spend enough time surrendered to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, then guess what happens? God will turn your life into something extraordinary. I've seen that happen in my life. I, I've had, you know, many Sundays. I think of preaching a sermon sort of like, uh, you know, coming up to bat in a baseball game. You know, everybody wants to hit a home run, like over the fences. You know, just drop the microphone and walk off and be like, that's how it's done, kids. Go, go watch the replay on TV because it's that good. But often, you know, I feel like, you know, you get a, a single hit. Maybe, you know, you get a double. I've, I've felt like I've been hit before, like beamed. And, like, I was just lucky to get on base. And it's, it's always surprising to me. It should never be surprising. It's in those moments where I'm like, well, that won't make the highlight reel. Um, that won't make it on Preach SPN tonight. Um, it seems to me always in those moments that somebody will come genuinely, and they'll say to me, hey, um, that really meant something to me. Thank you. And, you know, 
us coming together, doing the best we can in chasing after Jesus. A little bit of honesty, a little bit of authenticity, a little bit of surrender. And we see something amazing happen. Um, encouragement. I'll close with this here. You know, I've baby Sunday makes me think about this. I've had this conversation with so many fathers-to-be, I, I can't, I've lost count of who many, how many, and who. But uh, one guy, I remember one time I, I said to him, his wife was getting ready to have a baby, and I said, hey, I, I just want you to know your wife is going to come back to you. Um, and he looked at me and he said, really? And I said, yeah, she is. you got to give her some time. She's turning food into a human being right now. That's hard work, but she's coming back. And he had tears in his eyes, and he said to me, thank you so much for that. Listen, that wasn't a profound thing to say. That was just a little bit of authenticity. I saw a guy that needed a little bit of encouragement, and I allowed myself to be used by God in that moment. So we put this together. We wrap up Artisan Soul today. Two things. Jesus is our masterpiece. He's the one we're pursuing. He's the one we want to be like. And he is the master craftsman. He is the one who is doing amazing things inside of us. So I want you to be encouraged today. I want you to know that you're not alone. I want you to know that you don't have to do the work in your soul. God does that. He is doing that work in you. He is the one sanctifying you. You simply have to be surrendered. Allow him to do that work in you. And then allow him to use you in the world in simple conversations, and in simple, ordinary means of work. If we do that enough, he will turn the ordinary into the extraordinary. Why don't you stand? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, Lord, for your encouragement. We thank you, God, that you've not left us alone. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to do it on our own. And so, Lord, this morning, we surrender ourselves to you. We ask that you would do with our lives what you did with that water, that you would take our ordinary lives, that you would turn them into something extraordinary, that you would use us, God, to encourage people in a divine and a miraculous moment, in simple, ordinary conversations.